It is cool. How is my dad? My dad is, for the first time since his event, doing better. Thank you for asking. He, uh, they're probably at the house watching right now. He, uh, one day this week, he just kind of turned the corner and the smile came back and uh, the humor had never went away, but he's, he's doing better and he's looking better. Thank you for asking. Uh, on that note, quite appropriately, just to get us all on the same page, I, I want to ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud, but here's the question. You ever got anything in your world, anything in your life that causes you to lose sleep? You're one of those folks that lays awake and the, the hamster wheel just spins like crazy in your brain and before you know it, you got to get up and start the day? Most of us, turns out 50 to 70 million American adults have a hard time sleeping at night, insomnia or some version thereof. More than 9, somewhere between 9 and 12 million of us take drugs to help us sleep. It seems that it's an epidemic across America. We, we, we're not sleeping well. We're entering the day tired. We're going through the day exhausted. And then we get to another night and we don't sleep again. And if you're one of those people, what, what is it that keeps you awake? What is the stuff that causes the wheels of your brain to spin out of control at night and then you wake up in this sleep-deprived fog? What are the things Maybe it's trouble with your marriage. Maybe it's trouble with the business. Maybe it's, it's concerns at work. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's sin that you can't get away from. Maybe it's addiction that you can't shake. Maybe it's concerns about your children. Maybe it's the memory of something you did or didn't do. But I'll tell you what it isn't. What it isn't is solving world peace, is it? You don't lay awake at night trying to figure out how to end world hunger, do you? See, what happens is we lay awake at night worrying about these things that we think we can fix. Am I right? Be honest with me. Any of you ever lost a moment of sleep worrying about world hunger? Anybody lost a moment of sleep worrying about world peace? Not even at one. Okay, there's somebody here. Maybe, maybe we should be concerned about who has got the access to the nuclear red button. But you know what? That's not the stuff that keeps us awake. The stuff that keeps us awake is the things that we think we can fix. The problems that we think we've created, the, the problems that we think we should be able to solve, somehow or another, what happens at night is our brains spin and spin and spin because somehow we think by giving up sleep and thinking about it, we're going to somehow make it better. And it's always stuff that we think we can fix and cure and heal or change on our own. Even if it's a medical diagnosis that you or someone that you love has, you lie awake at night trying to figure out where do we go to get them fixed? Where do we go to get them healed? We worry about the things that we think that we can do and what we really want. What we really want is inner peace and a good night's sleep. So there must be a better answer. New Testament tells us, The worrying isn't going to add a single day to our life. Worrying will not add one single day to how long you live. So you might as well live today and make the most of it. We're picking up on our Gospel of John, chapter 16, passage we left last week. But I want to ask you this question. If you're a person of prayer, and if you believe that God hears you and has the ability to answer your prayers... And that those answers are always going to be in your best interest. 
God's answers are always going to be according to His best will for your life. Why do you worry? I've said this before. If we're going to be people of prayer, don't worry. But if you're going to worry, don't bother being a person of prayer. Either you're going to give it to God or you're not. I, I get asked the question a lot. It happened twice this week. Don't you get nervous about all that land you just bought? Don't you get nervous about how much money you just spent? My answer is I didn't buy it. And I sure didn't spend it. And I've not lost one moment of sleep because I absolutely know that we're here because it's a part of God's plan. And God has a plan to see us through. Now, if I had to worry about writing the check myself, I would not be sleeping well. But I don't. I know that we're here because it's a part of God's call and God's plan for us. So I don't have to worry. I just spend my time praying. And what's happened since the day that we said yes to this whole property is that we have seen God answer every need that we had many times before we fully realized that we had it. And many of you are answers to those prayers. You have gifts and talents and abilities we didn't know even existed out there. But when we need them, sure enough, you showed up and said, hey, where can I help? If ever you need a reason to trust in prayer, look at this place. So if you've got your Bible, go to John 16, 16th chapter of John. Jesus is going to continue in verse 23. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He'll give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Here's the thing when we ask God for help. You know what the first thing you've got to do if you're really going to ask God to help and intervene in this situation? If you're going to pray and ask God to fix something, the very first thing you've got to do is believe that God can and will. And that seems like a really simple thing, but then ask yourself, have you ever prayed about anything and then late at night worrying about it? Have you prayed and then spent the next night lying awake worrying about what you just prayed for? Do you really believe God can and will fix it? Do you believe that God hears you and that He cares about you enough that He'll respond and answer that prayer in some way that is in your best interest? See, we don't always like the answers. But we've got to trust that God hears us and that God responds. But because we don't ask, we don't know that God really can and will deliver. Now that doesn't mean that God is going to give us everything that we want. That doesn't mean that your solution to the financial problem you might find yourself in is to win the lottery. God may not decide that the best thing for you is, in fact, to win the lottery. God may have a different path for you to be on and some lessons to be learned and some growing to do. And God may see that somebody else wins the lottery. For all I know, God doesn't care about who wins the lottery. I don't know about those things, but I know God cares about you. I know that God cares about the situation that you're in, the problem that you're facing, and I know that God cares about the things that keep you awake at night. That's why Jesus invites us to pray. God will give us what is good and right for us in His will. And we might think the answer is so clear that we actually pray, God, will you please do this? And maybe the, thing that we, the very thing that we pray for isn't at all a part of God's plan. And then when we ask for something and we don't get it, we wonder what's wrong with God. But when we ask with right reasons and we ask in God's will, we understand that God always hears and God always responds and we begin to experience a fullness in our relationship with God that we don't have when 
we try to tell God what to do. Because we're not really giving up the steering wheel then. We're maintaining it and just adding God to weigh in and to more be a genie than anything else. See, when our relationship with God is full, we realize that we don't need to worry anymore. Because not only do we no longer carry the penalty of our sin, we know that God is truly there for our best interest, to give us our our very best life in Him. And Jesus says when we begin to live that life, we have joy. In fact, we're full of joy. Jesus goes on in verse 25, and remember now this conversation with His disciples, they're being confused about. Jesus says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but you will, I will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus is in part referring to the parables that He teaches in so often. Parables, by their nature, are a little bit confusing. Not everybody can just simply understand them. You have to have a little bit of an understanding of who God is and how Jesus is at work in the world. In fact, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day never got it. They never understood. They never ever accepted Jesus for who He was, so He never understood how it was that He taught. And yet you and I, see, we're the ones that have heard Him plainly. And how is that? We've got the entirety of the Bible. We have the Old Testament scrolls that are now in the pages of nicely bound Bibles. And we've got all the writings of the New Testament all in one place that give us everything we need to know about who Jesus is and who the Father is. Jesus says one day He will tell us plainly, and He has. It's in the Bible. Verse 26, And that day you will ask in My name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me and you believe that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples finally said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly to us and not using figurative speech. They have their aha moment. Thank you, Jesus. Now you made it simple. See, if if what we do when we gather for this time on Sunday morning, and God's really got me going through this, why, why do we do sermons? That's such an unusual thing in our world. The reason we do is what Jesus is talking about there is to help us all come to the same page of understanding of what it is that the Bible really means. And then we feed into that all of our own experiences and what we've been through and what God has done with and brought us through and said to us. And we get a much more complete picture as a gathering of believers. And when we're able to get into small groups and talk about it, our faith grows because our experiences are strengthened knowing that we're not the only ones going through it. The fact is, they say, aha, we got it, but they still don't fully understand Jesus or what He's talking about. We know that because of what we're going to see a little bit later in John. Verse 30, Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Here's what they're saying. You're really smart. You you know everything. It doesn't matter what somebody hits you with. They can throw you a curveball. The religious leaders can. Those guys that know so much more than we do. And Jesus, you're always ready for them. You've always got an answer. In fact, you know what? You're going and quoting their own Scriptures. The only way you can do that is you've got to come from God. So there was some, not just respect, but some recognition that they were finally gaining that this Jesus wasn't just a miracle worker, but He was really the real deal. This is why we believe you came from God. First thing I'm going to ask before we get to the next verse is this. Why do you believe? Maybe the better question is, do you believe? 
Maybe you're one of those cases, and I need to ask you is, why do you not believe? Belief is a big deal in the Bible. God doesn't assume that we're going to believe in Him. That's so much of why we have Jesus in the New Testament is to give us one final exclamation point of a reason that God says, I love you. I am here. I want a relationship with you. Here is my Son. Why do you believe? Why do you not believe? Jesus goes on in verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? They're saying they believe in Him. He's saying, Do do you now believe? What's changed? See, Jesus knows their hearts. And Jesus knows your heart and mine. And I would guess one of the questions He's asking is, do you really believe or do you just have no other options? When we pray, do we pray in earnest because we know God hears us? Or do we pray because we've got nowhere else to go? God is our last 911 call. In that case, do you really believe that God hears you and can and will respond? Do you believe? The real question is, do we believe in Jesus? The question's a real one, and it isn't, it isn't a question of do we believe Jesus. There's a big difference. It's actually the difference between living your life on your own term for your own enjoyment and just getting the most out of every day and living a life as a disciple of Jesus. It's as different as spending your night tossing and turning and not being able to sleep because you don't know what to do about something and sleeping soundly because your joy is full and your heart is at peace because you know that God has everything in the world in His hands. It's the difference between trying to solve it and resolve it and fix it and cure it and heal it on your own and knowing and trusting and believing that God can do it all. It's important because Jesus knows what's ahead for the disciples and for you and I. He's talking about what the world is going to do to us. It's why He's having this discussion with His disciples because He knows what they're about to face. But it's also a message that He needs us to hear because He knows the world that we live in. Very different than the world the disciples were in, but very much the same. And the same is the problem. The problem hasn't changed. Verse 32, he says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. In the hours that follow this conversation, the disciples do just that. They scatter, they run, they hide, they get away from Jesus as far as they can in fear for their own life. We're going to read not too long. Peter is going to deny Jesus not just once, but three times. And Jesus is left to hang on the cross all alone, but with a handful of people there with Him, mostly women. Jesus is telling the disciples that you're going to run, and they do. But He knows that He's not alone because He knows that all that He is doing, He's doing in God's will for Him. As dark as the moments feel, as dark as the day ahead is going to be for Jesus, He knows that He's not alone. He knows that He is in God's will. See, Satan believed that he'd won the war when Jesus died on the cross. Satan figured it was all over. He'd won. This good guy that showed up, Satan's thinking, I beat him. Human sin and hatred killed goodness. Human sin and hatred killed love. And yet Jesus' resurrection proved that Satan was wrong and announced to the world that the battle had been fought and won and that God alone stood victorious. But Satan, see, he's a tough customer. Satan didn't give up. 
Satan says, well, the battle may have been won, God, but you know what? The, the war may have been won, but the battle wages on. See, Satan and God didn't sign a, a peace agreement. Satan didn't agree to anything, but God has declared to him what the end will look like. And Satan says, well, then, for the rest of time that I've got an opportunity to work, my battle is going to go on, but it's no longer going to be against you. It's, that one's been lost. It's going to be against people. It's going to be against you and I. It's going to be against the church. It's going to be against people who want to love God. It's going to be against our church, our friends, our families, our children. That's why it's so incredibly important that we grasp the potential of what God has given us with all of this. Yeah, it's a cool place. Fun to talk about. Awesome to drive out here on a beautiful sunny day. But you know what? That's not the point. The point is that We've got the opportunity through this place to shine the light of Jesus on anyone and everyone who we can reach through this place. If you want to know what drives me, what drives me is the reality that Satan is at work in the world, in your life, in mine, and in everybody else who we can possibly get to hear our messages. It's why we talk about preaching for salvation. I'm not going to ever stand up here and preach to make you feel good because you know what? You're not going to get to heaven by feeling good about your life. You're going to get to heaven by recognizing, realizing, accepting, and believing in what Jesus did for you in this life. But do you believe? Do you believe? See, what Satan's trying to do is to get us to deny and to refuse and to turn from God. He knows every time a human being does that, every time we choose sin, every time we choose what we want, every time we choose against God's will for us, We break the very heart of God and it separates us from God. That sin separates us from God possibly forever. If we fall so much in love with the world and with our sin that we have no room to love God and Satan wins that battle for your soul. Today, Satan no longer tries to tempt Jesus. Today, his only target is you and I your friends, your family, our children. Sin, hatred, fear, doubt, pride, they're among His favorite tools. His favorite tool in the church is division. You get a proud person to divide a wedge and put it between two church people or two groups of church people or between two churches or between themselves and the rest of the church, Satan can use that wedge to push people a long way from God. And in most churches where Satan starts is with the worship. He knows it well. He knows the value and the importance of it. And one of the things that we have done to our very best in this place is to put in all of the protections that we can to keep Satan from even getting a foothold to put a wedge anywhere in between us. doesn't mean it isn't going to happen, but boy, are we on guard. And Satan uses those things that the world calls okay. You know what? You've got a right to your hatred, the world says. The world says you've got a right to your fear. You better be afraid of them because you don't really know who they are or what they'll do. Satan uses doubt and we believe we've got the right to doubt. Well, I don't know for sure. Prove it to me. Satan uses our pride because boy, oh boy, can we be convinced that we're better than the next guy or the next woman or the next church. No, we're not. We're just trying to do what God called us to do in partnership with all the other churches around that are just trying to do what God called them to do. Sorry, Satan. No room here. 
He uses doubt, fear, unanswered questions to get us to leave Jesus or even to stop us from having an eternity-changing relationship with us, with Him. He gives us things that maybe don't really even matter to keep us awake at night and tells us that we can figure it out on our own, try a little harder, think a little more. You can fix it. He gets us to spin our mental wheels all night long when we should be resting rather than getting on our knees and giving it all to God who actually can do something about it. Satan tells us, God gave you a great brain. You know better. He tells us, you know what? You know the right people and you can get the right answers. Hey, just Google it. You can figure it out. And every time we fall for that, it separates us a little bit more from God. See, the reason Jesus asked the disciples if they believed in Him because their belief hadn't yet turned to complete faith and trust. Their belief still had a lot of room for Satan to work. And Jesus knew that Satan was just getting ready. Matthew 26, 56 says, All of this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all of the disciples left Him and fled. They fled out of fear despite everything had told them. Jesus had spent three years teaching them, proving them, consistently being the same guy to them. They had belief, but their unbelief was even greater. Mark 9, there's a passage about a man whose child has got a problem and he brings him to Jesus. And and this man is full of fear. He comes to Jesus with his last ditch 911 because he doesn't know what else to do. Jesus says to him, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus could see into this man's heart, and this man's heart was so broken for his child. He was at the end of his rope, literally. Staying awake at night wasn't going to do him any more good. He could spin those mental wheels as fast as his brain's hamster could run, but he wasn't going to solve a thing, and so he went to Jesus. And Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. It's one of the most true statements that that I can identify with in Scripture. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. I love that the reply of this father wasn't, yes, you can do anything, Jesus, and do it now. What he does is he, he has this confession. I have belief, but Jesus, I have unbelief. And most days my unbelief feels bigger than what I believe. Jesus, the answer to the problem that his child is facing is right there. And he says, anything is possible. And the guy says, I believe. He has no doubt in Jesus at all. But then his response is, help my unbelief. I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. He really heard Jesus. When Jesus said all things are possible, Jesus makes the impossible possible. And this man knew it. Jesus makes the soon-to-be-dead alive. And this man knew it. Jesus took what no human being could possibly fix, mend, put together, or repair, and Jesus can make His child whole. And the man knew it. With you and I, Jesus takes the unlovable and He makes us lovable. Jesus takes our sin that is unforgivable and He makes us forgiven. When Jesus says all things are possible, He truly means all things. The question is, do you believe? Do you believe when Jesus says, I can give you a tomorrow that is completely different than your yesterday? Do you believe it? 
Or do you continue to try to figure out how to change it on your own? Do you spend your night spinning the wheels, giving up sleep? Or do you take a little while and get to your knees and give it all to Him? I believe, Jesus. Help me in my unbelief. Verse 33, I've said these things to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The disciples are about to see their Lord and Savior, their Master, hanging on a cross at the hands of the Roman army until He is dead. Jesus knows what that's going to do to them. All He can do is hopes that He remember, hope that they remember He came that they would have peace. They would hear Him say, I know you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. When we get to the end of our rope and we don't know what to do, what we need to remember is that this is not foreign ground for God. You are not someplace that God never expected that you would be. Whatever is facing you in any given moment, now, no matter how insurmountable it might feel, God has overcome the world. Jesus tells them, I, I know you're going to have trials, I know you're going to have trouble, I know you're going to have tribulation while we're alive. Those things aren't going to go away. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean your life becomes perfect. It means that you recognize how imperfect you are and that you have put all of your faith and hope and trust and love in your perfect God. But you're still going to have troubles. Things aren't going to always go our way. We're going to sin. We're going to do exactly what we don't want to do. We're going to know evil and pain and sadness and suffering. Nowhere does the Bible tell us anywhere that when we become a Christian, those things go away. In fact, when we become a Christian, what we know is that Satan turns up the heat and really begins to go to work and starts to make trouble for us. He deceives us into believing more in ourselves and thinking that we on our own have the strength to overcome. He deceives us into thinking that if you lay awake at night and give up some sleep, you can solve your own problems. He deceives us into being, believing that we've got a right to our fear and anger and hatred and all of those other things. But what we know is all of that is futile. That is why Satan wants you to believe it. Because it will get you nothing. Instead, what we have is what Jesus introduced to us a few chapters ago, and that is the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Everything that we cannot do on our own, the Holy Spirit can do in us, through us, and for us. And in Jesus, we don't have to worry because Jesus has already overcome the world. The battle has been won. Jesus did it on the cross. And as He walked out of the grave, He announced to Satan, you don't own anything. He announced to Satan that death isn't the end and that the only one who has overcome the world is in fact Jesus Himself. He did this so that we could have peace in Him, not in our own efforts. And when we begin to realize that it isn't us who is going to change us, but rather it's us working within the promises that God has made and working together with the Holy Spirit in us that we can begin to realize peace. We can begin to know True transformation. That's a change that a Christian goes through on the inside. God truly has all things in His hands. Peace is from Jesus. Tribulation, trials, pride, arrogance, sin, division, brokenness. 
Those are the things of the world that Satan uses to drive us from each other and to drive us from God. The enemy of God is still fighting that war, even though he knows it's been lost. What we have to do as Christians is never lose sight of the fact that that war has been won. If you want to know how I know that, just get your Bible, go to the last book, read it through and through. You're going to ask some questions. It's not all going to make sense your first time through, but you know what you find out at the end? Jesus wins. At the end of the day, God wins. And for all those who put their faith and hope and trust in Him, we also win because we have nothing to fear. A few months ago, we started this look at the Gospel of John. We read Gospel of John, first chapter, fifth, fifth verse. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light. The world is the darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness will not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus shines through the darkness and He brings joy, not fear. Jesus is one. 1 John 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Who is in you? What do you believe? Where do you put your faith and hope and trust? And when you come to the end where you think that by lying awake and worrying you can solve something, do you really turn it over to Him? Or do you try to fix it on your own so you don't have to carry your burdens by yourself? So what should we do? What do we do when we get to that point? That all sounds good, Pastor. That sounds great, but you don't know my life. I want to believe Jesus is real, but you know what? i got problems. i got real problems. i got stuff that you can't understand, Pastor. Twenty years of ministry, want to bet? I'm not dismissing what you're going through. In fact, I'd like to highlight it for you. God is not unaware. God is not afraid. God is not unwilling to jump into the middle of it and transform you. But it starts with whether or not you believe He can. If all you're going to do is throw God a 911 prayer, there's not much God can do, and here's why. God could answer your prayer perfectly. He could do everything that you've ever asked. And if you don't believe that He really has the ability to do it, you're going to go, you are not going to believe the way the stars lined up for me. Aren't you? You're going to talk more about coincidence than in God's hand. You're going to talk more about how, man, I just did everything right. It was like I was on a roll. When in reality, it's God rolling over the powers of the world to your benefit. So what do you do? You're at the end of your rope. 1 Peter 5.10 Here's what you do, folks. You want to take away from this morning? We're going to jump ahead into the Bible to another book. 1 Peter 5.10 Here's what you do. Humble yourselves. Why do we have to humble ourselves? Well, when we do that, we recognize that God can do something that we can't. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. We always want to say, well, God, I I want respect. I want people to appreciate me. I want someone to know what I'm worth. You know what? At the right time, God will see that you will be exalted. And you know what will be exalted in you? Him. If we're working for our own glory, we're going to work a long time and there's not going to be much there. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him. This is the lay awake at night, hamster wheel spinning in your head. There it is right there. Cast all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
You can't be sober-minded because here's where so much of the problems in America come from, folks. And boy, oh boy, this is going to jump all over toes. You can't be sober-minded if you're not sober. You can't. You want to know where your problems are coming from? Go to that verse and say, how am I doing? You want to be sober-minded? We've got to start out by being sober. And then we've got to be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is seeking you and your insecurity, your fear, your pride, your thought that you can do it yourself. It doesn't matter. He's just looking for an opening that we give him in order to devour us. And what's the first thing he's going to devour is your faith. He's going to devour your belief in God. Verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here's the thing, you're not alone. Somebody else is going through it. In fact, God has carried someone else through it, and they can be a strength and encouragement to you. And then you know that when God carries you through, you get the turn to be the strength and encouragement to somebody else. You're not alone. We want to think that we are. The devil wants you to think that you are. But you're not. Those sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, same phrase as we saw last week in John. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, if you're going through some trial or trauma or tribulation, or if you feel like you are living a literal hell on earth right now, you may be. But you put your faith and trust in Jesus, it'll only be for a little while. You keep trying to do it on your own, it could last you the rest of your life and you'll never get out of it. But the promise is you put your faith and hope and trust in God and it will only last you a little while. And when you have come through it, God Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is what happens when our pain and anguish over what we cannot do is replaced by a joy and a faith and a belief that cannot be taken away. Because we know at the bottom of our being and we believe in what Jesus has done for us. It isn't what you do for Jesus. None of this chapter today has been about that. It's about what God has done for you in Jesus. So this morning, if you're struggling with your own belief, if you say, I believe, help me in my unbelief, if the world is crashing in and you feel like you are absolutely losing the battle and joy is what somebody else has and you don't know what it is for whatever reason, boy, have I got something for you today. It's called a prayer team. See, some of us aren't even sure how to go to God in prayer because we don't even know what to ask for. But what God has done is gifted and called some people to pray alongside you, to pray with you, to pray for you. They will be right here after the service. Please, please, there's, there's nothing that anyone's going to say about you that's more important than what these folks can say to you. We think, well, I don't want to be the one that has to go up there and I don't want people to talk about me. I don't want my problems to be that bad. You know what? If your problems are that bad, maybe that's your only answer. And they're not going to solve your problem for you. They're going to partner with you and take it to the one who can. They're not going to fix anything. But we are blessed with some folks who are deeply connected to the one who can. 
Set aside pride because that's what Satan wants to keep you away for. Set aside your fear because Satan wants to keep you away for that reason. Set aside your doubt. Maybe God won't really listen because Satan uses that. Set aside all the things that God, all of the things that, that get in your way that Satan has given you to say, well, I'm not going to go up because. Those aren't godly things. Those are the enemy of God speaking. And what you may find is that there is really a way to peace. There really is a way to joy. Please come forward and let those folks pray with you, visit with you, talk with you. And you know what? If you don't struggle with unbelief, then we get the same directions from 1 Peter. We do the same thing. And we just say, God, fill me with your peace. Fill me with your joy. I want to be somebody new and different. Transform me starting right here today. The wonderful point of all of it is that none of us arrive until we get to heaven. None of us have it completely figured out. We have a whole lot of aha moments along the way. But I'll tell you what, once, once we have that day where, where we enter into the presence of God, that's where we're going to go, ah. And all the stuff we struggle with here suddenly is going to be not even a distant memory. And we're going to realize all of the things that God had been trying to tell us. Don't wait. Don't wait. You can start living that life today. And it all begins with belief. Let's pray. God, thank You for who You are. Thank You for what You did for us in Jesus. God, thank You that one of the things that we all share is moments of unbelief. Some of us believe. Others of us aren't sure that we do. But we all have moments of unbelief. The other thing that we share, God, is sin. And Satan will use that sin to divide us from each other and to separate us from You. God, we ask that Your Holy Spirit would be present and would fill those places, those times, those moments, and those thoughts when Satan tries to take over and to divide and separate us. God, ask for every person in this room that Your Holy Spirit would fill us with thoughts of You, would fill us with peace that can only come from You and a joy that can only come from knowing who Jesus is and what He has done for us. And God, for everyone out there who might be wondering if if they're the one that we're talking about, if they're the one that should be coming forward, God, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would just press heavily on them and that, God, Your Holy Spirit would just guide them up to pray with our prayer team. God, that today would be the day that they would be able to give up the sleepless nights and instead be able to spend their time on their knees coming to You, casting all those cares, all those concerns, all those worries to You, leaving them at the foot of the cross and starting to sleep in peace and be filled with joy. In Jesus' name, Amen. Here's how it breaks down, folks. You can spend your life trying to do all the hard work to make your life better. Or... You can give all of your problems and cares and concerns and believe in the one who already did all the work. It's really up to you. It's that simple. Around here, we would love to help encourage you to make that choice that says, I believe, and that your entire eternity is changed forever. That being said, if you're a believer, if you're one who knows what peace and joy is, that whole light shining in the darkness, that becomes part of our job. As Christians, we are to go into the world and shine the light of Jesus, not in how great a person we are, but in the fact that Jesus is in us. We are to carry that light out into the world to people who need it. And there is a hurting world out there. There's a lot of people that do not know peace and joy. And maybe it's as simple as just simply saying to them, Jesus loves you. 
So one of the things I do up here a lot is to say, Jesus loves you. 